0: Hi, I'm David Manty, and welcome to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have about 15 years covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five biggest stories on our websites and discuss the implications they might have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also do us a big favor by leaving a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to reach the podcast, you can reach any of us at David, Jeff, or Anna at IEN.com. Jeff. We've had a week away. Do you feel refreshed? I feel probably too
1: relaxed. So yeah. this could, you know, we're going to need a little bit of patience with our listeners on this one. So <laughs> there's a lot of pauses and ums. It's just the vacation brain still uh,
0: still in effect, I think. All right. When Jeff goes quiet, I'm coming to you, Anna.
2: I'm glad we chose this week after a week off to like really just stand really close at this tiny shelf together.
0: Yeah. It's been at least 10 days since I've been this the smallest, close to anyone. Smallest area possible. Yeah. News actually, we got positive feedback on the new setup. Uh, Loyal listener Doug, he's down with the holodeck, so I think we're just going to roll with that.
2: That's his name now.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. The holodeck brought to you by Loyal Listener Doug. All right. Our top story this week Tesla delivers more than 200,000 vehicles in the second quarter. Tesla says it delivered 201,250 electric vehicles while battling a global computer chip shortage that has hit nearly every automaker. While the sales fell short of Wall Street estimates for 207,000 vehicles, the company beat first quarter sales of 185,000. The company is on pace to double last year's nearly 500,000 deliveries and could hit 900,000 in annual sales this year. During the quarter, Tesla dealt with cruise control issues in China and recalled 285,000 vehicles after reports of cruise control being accidentally activated. Tesla only counts a car as delivered if it is transferred to the customer and all paperwork is correct. Jeff, I mean, I think they did better than a lot of people were expecting.
1: It's a, it's really impressive, especially if you remember when the Model 3 first came out and they had that influx of orders. They had some serious deliverability problems mm-hmm. um, in terms of people being told the vehicle was going to be there and then it wasn't. And even more impressive, if you look back since 2015, Tesla's numbers are up almost uh, like tenfold, excuse me, hundredfold. In 2015, they had just over 50,000 deliverable, deliverable, delivered vehicles. There's that vacation brain kicking (laughs) in. And last year, you said almost half a million. Mm -hmm. So the rise has been extremely impressive. And as impressive as it is going from almost five to nine, um, you look back, I think their biggest jump to date was really 2017 to 2018, they increased by 140,000 vehicles. So if they're looking to more than double in mm-hmm. 2021, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of automotive supply chain challenges, incredibly impressive. And at some point, maybe we need to give Elon Musk a little bit of credit. And
0: is it time to give <laughs> Elon Musk credit?
2: I want to. Um, you know, as Jeff said, like Tesla's really done as well as they could have possibly done, um, considering the circumstances and, and everyone being kind of hamstrung by this chip shortage. Um, I think these numbers did tell us something else, too, which is, you know, to your point, Jeff, like we talk about Elon Musk a lot and how he kind of does his own thing and he books the system and he says what he wants and he does what he wants. Um, and we've talked before about how long can you continue to do this before maybe it catches up to you or it catches up to your brand or people start to feel these these scandals are a little bit distasteful um, like Nissan they have been recovering from their executive scandal which was huge right um, mm. their CEO got arrested he fled the country of Japan but they have been in the red for now like almost three years I think still saying like we're still trying to get past this still just, so there was like a lot of brand damage that was done by their chief executive um, and you know tesla like you know there's been sec investigations there have been you know safety ratings yanked because of their protocols there's been privacy issues things as you said like issues with um deliverability all this stuff but tesla just seems like they are resistant to letting this bad news ever actually impact their brand i mean people are still buying teslas uh you don't hear anything about this their stock has been going crazy um i don't know maybe uh Elon Musk is coded in Teflon. Maybe we do owe him some credit. I don't know. Well, we, I mean, we must.
0: Do you attribute that to his charisma? Or do, is Tesla still a relatively niche brand? I think so. I mean, the scale is different. If you compare mm-hmm. Tesla sales to like Nissan
1: or, mm-hmm. or something like that, it's much smaller. Um, so I think there are just those people that are just really behind the EV movement. And Tesla is sort of the you know the rock star of, of that genre of vehicle. Mm-hmm. I think what's also, though, a little bit impressive with these numbers and how they've grown is that there's not a typical service um availability sort of dynamic that you would expect with a regular vehicle. Right. Mm-hmm. Really the only thing you can take to a sort of general repair shop, if you will, um, is the tires. Mm-hmm. And even then, you have to be careful because Tesla only approves certain third parties to do any work on their vehicles. So the big things to me always when you think about a vehicle are brakes and tires. The tires aren't too much of a challenge because at the end of the day it's it's a it's wheel. It's tire, yeah. But I mean when you look at regenerative braking, that's a different dynamic. Mm-hmm. So if something does go wrong that can't be repaired by some of their over-the-air software fixes, you do have to find a place to take it and and have it uh, you know, fixed. So you're gonna lose your vehicle for a couple of days, probably. Yeah. And so it's it's unique there, but that doesn't seem to be stopping the growth. What's the next step, though, I guess, for them? What is the next benchmark for them to clear in terms of becoming like you had described it as sort of a niche brand, and I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. What does it take for them? What number is it before they become more of a mainstream? And then how do they address some of these things? Because it is going to be different to go just buy a Tesla. Mm-hmm. When you're doing that, that's an event. That's something you really prepare for, and you have to be do your research a little bit in terms of where can I go? Where can I get it serviced? All that kind of stuff. So um, as impressive as the growth is... You just wonder where does it start to plateau, Mm -hmm. and then what does that brand have to do to go to the next level? Cybertruck.
2: That's cybertruck. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, you talk about them being the rock star brand, and part of it is like the Cybertruck. Part of it is that when you think of, you know, a Tesla versus a Leaf, I don't even think there's a question.
2: No, one is exciting and one isn't. Yeah.
0: Yeah, one is a Leaf. When is a leaf? Yeah. (laughs) Well, so I tried to look up some of the sales comparisons, particularly with EV sales year over year. So we could compare it to like traditional combustion engine sales. But given the exponential growth of EV sales combined with, you know, major automakers revealing EV only strategies within the next 10 to 15 years, Anna, is this finally going to force buyers to make the transition? I mean, I looked at it personally and with almost all automakers within the next 10 to 15 years saying everything's going EV, yeah, and I know I'm going to turn over at least one, probably two cars in mm-hmm. that time period, it made me kind of step back and think like, oh, I'm going to have to buy an EV mm-hmm. finally, because I always juggle with it. And then I just, you know,
2: hybrid. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> and I was struggling to think like, okay, I will be all right with that and be willing to make the plunge.
2: Yeah. I mean, the data on EV adoption, I feel like is a little bit Misleading, mm-hmm. because I think there are there is a group of people out there, I'm included. I think you're probably included, that have their eye on EVs, but are waiting for the technology to kind of work out. You know, like yeah. we know that there's all these new um, brands and models that are going to be flooding the market in the next few years. We know that battery technology is progressing very quickly. Um, we know that charging is progressing quickly. Mm-hmm. So why do you buy an EV now? You you probably don't. Yeah. You know, you wait two, three years and either you have your pick of brand new models or the used market will be flooded with tons of stuff that would be serviceable and a lot, lot cheaper. Yeah. So I don't know. I think like maybe there's more demand there than is like maybe patently obvious with those numbers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know about forcing people into it. I think that... Um, It'll be well, an interesting. It'll be interesting to see, obviously, as you as you mentioned. But. Well,
0: not so much force, but I mean, Jeff, in like ten to fifteen years, a lot of automakers are only making EVs. They say. They say. <laughs> <laughs> but it is going to be a market dynamic. That's what's going to
1: drive all of that. Mm-hmm. If they really do go that route, if people still want to buy gas-fired vehicles in such a majority that they can't overproduce or they can only produce so many of these EVs in order to be profitable. And that's what they're going to do. And that's what they should do. Mm -hmm. I think we are in a little bit of a vacuum in the U.S. too. I mean, U.S. car sales, only like 1% of them are electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. It's much bigger than that when you look globally Mm -hmm. in in different countries, uh, especially in the EU, especially China. So that's what's going to be interesting too. Is the U.S. consumer going to sort of keep pace with some of these other
0: big automotive markets around the world? Mm -hmm. Or are we going to remain who we are? But didn't those other auto markets decide for them?
2: Well, gas is also a lot more expensive over there in the yeah. EU. So that makes it easier to make that choice, I would think. It's sure. just
0: it's
1: different. I mean, yeah. when you look at the vehicles that are driving around Europe, you don't see as many like I drive a, a larger sedan. Mm-hmm. You don't see that vehicle over there. You mm-hmm. just you don't. Um they're smaller cars typically. Um even the SUVs I think are a little bit smaller in terms of scale. Yeah. Um so there's nowhere mind. to park.
0: <laughs> yeah. On the cobblestone winding road right all right the fourth most popular story this week Amtrak to pay 7.3 billion to replace aging trains Amtrak wants to replace 83 passenger trains and some of them are nearly 50 years old last week the company announced 7.3 billion dollars to overhaul part of its fleet some of the trains will be hybrids that operate on diesel fuel when wires are unavailable for electricity though the company says that the new diesel trains will at least pollute less than the previous ones. The new engines and passenger cars will be built in Sacramento, California with delivery scheduled to start in 2024. Some of the new amenities include more comfortable seating, better ventilation systems, individual power outlets and USB ports, onboard Wi-Fi, and panoramic windows. The railroad will buy another 100, could buy another 130 trains from Siemens if all goes well. And the trains will be, cap- will be capable of traveling up to 125 miles per hour, but they're often limited to 90 miles per hour by track conditions. Anna, perhaps uh, the infrastructure bill could help out with that.
2: Yeah, it's nice to see money being put into public transportation on a national level, mm-hmm. not something that's just like a local, you know, bus thing or whatever. But um, yeah, if you look at some of those details, uh, there's some work to be done there. Like you mentioned, um, the the speed at which these trains can go. So uh if if amtrak says that the trains are capable of traveling 125 miles an hour which is not exactly what's considered high speed rail right mm-hmm. high speed rail is more like 200 miles per hour mm-hmm. but it's still a nice bump over highway speeds um i think that some at some point a certain speed is more compelling to people to like ditch their car and take public transit um into work or into a city um, but as you said, the trains can't travel more than 90 miles per hour because of track conditions, which means it would be nice to see some infrastructure funding go into the rail lines in a way that can support not only this, what we have now, but maybe future high speed rail. I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, I was surprised when I read this article, when they said that Amtrak ridership hit a record high in 2019. So pre pandemic, it was the most it had ever been, Yeah, which was, I was shocked by that <laughs> yeah. piece of information because I had I I thought that it was just sort of this dying thing um I know Uh, like you know city dwellers people or people that are living in the suburbs and commuting in Mm -hmm. are much more likely to use this but like when you read about like taking train rides cross country like how expensive and slow it is Mm -hmm. i just thought this was a dying thing apparently not i don't know i'm gonna stop talking about amtrak because i don't know enough about it
0: well the few times that i've been on the train uh comparatively when we're out on the east coast i always think every day on this huh Every day that's a pass for me. But Jeff, maybe actually I wouldn't care about the seating. Really, I would care about the power outlets, the Wi-Fi, and if you could figure out some way to like soundproof certain people, yeah, you know, I mean, I think it would make it much more enjoyable. Here's all you need to know to try to understand Amtrak.
1: (laughs) It is state owned, but for profit. Mm. How many of those types of entities do you know that are government run but are profitable? I don't think there's any, Jeff. There's not. And Amtrak <laughs> is definitely one of them. Yeah. Even since it's founded, it was 1971 is when the government took it over. It has never made a profit. Yeah. It has always lost millions of dollars every yeah. year. 2020 was actually looking to be the first year it could have made a profit. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then the pandemic hit. So- Amtrak, and actually I got a little bit of background with this because I used to work for a magazine called Mass Transit that covered this, and Amtrak was a big part Mm -hmm. of it, especially right around um, late 90s here in Wisconsin. It got a little bit of a headline because our governor actually took over the chairmanship of, of Amtrak for a while. So, but it's always been very difficult because it is government funded. You have to be sort of equal in terms of where you put Amtrak services when the reality is the only real profitable routes it has are in the Northeast Corridor. Mm -hmm. Taking people between Boston, um, D.C., Philly, New York, Mm -hmm. all of that. There is where Amtrak makes its money. Mm -hmm. These cross-trip rail lines and stuff that are beautiful and you can see all this wonderful stuff, they lose tons of money on them. They just they're not profitable because there's not enough people on them and like Anna said they're slow and they're expensive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I remember Amtrak was if you <laughs> if you bounced out of basic training, they put you on Amtrak to get you home Ooh. because it took forever. <laughs> so yeah. these guys would be like, yeah, it was a cool ride, but it took me 3 days to get to like, you know, St. Louis from Dallas. Yeah. So um, yeah, it, it's so I'm I'm conflicted when we look at this type of investment going in here. I think for where it is utilized It makes a ton of sense. Public transportation, drawing these folks, reducing the amount of stuff on the road. Mm -hmm. It's safer. It's better. All that. But Mm -hmm. you're investing $7 billion Mm -hmm. into an organization that has never
0: turned a profit. Well, I think, so that were some of the things that I was encouraged by is that they were looking at specific areas like the Northeast Corridor and uh, in the Pacific Northwest. You know, they were going to focus on those areas first, it sounded like, and then that's where the other trains could come into play uh, after they made those upgrades in the high-need areas. Uh, and Anna, to your point, yeah, they reached 32.4 million passengers in 2019. Now it's only back to about 62% of that. Yeah. It's only worked its way back. And prior to the pa- pandemic, they operated 310 trains per day. Now that's down to 201. Mm-hmm. But that should be back to full schedule by September or October. So, But perhaps this rampant. is an opportunity. Yeah, Look at the ones that are working. Yeah, Keep those.
1: Mm-hmm. Invest in those. As cool as it might sound to take a train through the Northwest Passage, not a lot of people are doing that.
2: Hey, yeah. I read Murder on the Orient Express. I'm not getting on a train and taking it for very long. I you, would, you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you don't Especially know if there's not a
1: real sleuthy French investigator on yeah. board who right. can
0: dig up background on anybody. <laughs> um, I, I, my mistake that I made on Amtrak was I didn't know the difference between the express and the commuter train. So that was what I'm assuming they send people back on on uh from basic. Where the commuter train is the one that stops at every every stop. <laughs> yeah. And I was like headed f- to Baltimore from New York and I'm like this is taking forever. Well, like yeah, figure your ticket. I took my family out to New York. Mm-hmm. We
1: took an Amtrak out of the city to oh boy. I think it was Connecticut. And it was great because mm-hmm. it was so much easier getting mm-hmm. out there even with the stops. Mm-hmm. I still would have taken that over trying to drive that any day. Yeah. So Definitely great opportunities here. Just use them the right way.
2: How about now with better Wi-Fi? Mm-hmm. Jeff's, More comfortable seats. Yep. Well, More I'm comfortable sure my seats.
1: daughters who keep their heads down, buried in their phones would be very
0: appreciative of that. True. So like real world example though, if there was good rail from Madison to O'Hare, I mean, Heart- we would take it, in right? In a heartbeat. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Same
1: thing up to the Twin Cities. Yeah. Because
0: yeah. that drive is garbage. Like where you got that 5 a.m. flight out of O'Hare. And you just, just like, is it? Do you have the 5 a.m. flight of
1: O'Hare because you waited until like a week before to book it? I mean, maybe it's two days
0: before. Every day. Yeah. <laughs> every single time. Man. But it's still a banging deal. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I'm busted on that one. Our third most popular story second chemical fire at Bangkok factory highlights health risks. Last Monday, a massive explosion at the Ming De chemical factory in Bangkok killed one person and injured many. The fire started around 3 a.m. at a foam and plastic pellet manufacturing factory. The blast in Thailand's capital prompted evacuations and damaged many area homes, blowing out windows and sending debris raining from the air. The blast could be heard for miles, but they were able to put the fire out after fighting it for 24 hours. Then, on Tuesday, the factory again burst into flames, sending another toxic cloud of black smoke into the community and burning for another hour. More than 60 people were injured in the the disaster, and the factory manager told authorities that he and eight staff members were sleeping on the site when they were woken up by a strong chemical smell, and they were able to escape just before the blast. Jeff, if anything, this story was a reminder of how things are done a little bit differently on the other side of the globe.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely one who has been um, critical of -hmm. all of our wonderful government agencies, but... Everything in between the Department of Labor, OSHA, um, the EPA, we would have a lot more answers if this mm-hmm. happened. Well, we just had that one up in Northern Illinois, right? You know, we had that type of situation, and there was even a, an assessment there on what was being used to control the, the, the fire and the chemicals and things like that. Here, they can't even they can't even get there yet. They're still trying to figure out what exactly was on fire, mm-hmm. what was burning, mm-hmm. what are the long term ramifications here, and. Even though that's one of the most critical parts of it, even the individuals who are combating this fire, they mm-hmm. were wearing surgical masks. Yeah. I mean, they didn't even have the correct protective equipment to use to control it. Mm-hmm. So what does that tell you about the whole operation from a safety perspective? And if you looked at these pictures, this is a hole in the ground now. Yeah. This was not just mm-hmm. some stuff caught on fire. They put it out. There's still a framework of a building. It is down, It is nothing. Yeah, there's nothing. It more. is ash. So it is extremely scary Mm -hmm. when you look at what could have been released into the ground, the air, and anybody who's in the vicinity trying to either get away from this fire or combat it, short-term and long-term. So, yeah, when we complain about, and like I said, I'm guilty of this as anybody, we complain about some of the over-regulatory oversight that we have with manufacturing here in the U.S., we do have to pause a minute and be appreciative of the fact that
0: We would be able to avoid some of this. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that's uh, no. In Illinois, we're going the American route where there are already hundreds of lawsuits about it. (laughs) Um, Anna. So I read that what they were making is styrene monomer used to make foam plates, cups and other products, and it can produce poisonous foam or fumes while ignited. So basically, they did figure out a little bit about what was burning and what went into the ground. And it sounds like none of it's good.
2: Doesn't sound good. No. I know. It's like, the, it's so sad that this went down at a place that's creating a product that shouldn't even exist anymore. Like we all yeah. know about styrofoam's inability to break down. Maybe we started calling styrofoam plates forever plates. Then forever people, plate. people would take it seriously. But, yeah, um, you know, Jeff mentioned the chem tool fire that we covered recently in Illinois uh we covered that ship um that was burning off the coast of sri lanka for a very long time that was packed full of chemicals um and the environmental disaster that sort of ensued there um it you know is what what's going on here uh, you know to to me my first thought is um maybe this is going to be sadly like kind of a a a more dangerous and deadly year for industrial sector because everybody is dealing with all this pent-up demand and you see factories adding shifts. They're running, you know, their uptime is as much as they can handle. Mm -hmm. Um, We've talked about these ships that are running routes, like maybe they shouldn't be running. Um, Just because everyone is working like overtime to try to get get at this pent-up demand and and get this stuff done and, and work through their supplies and their backlogs and stuff. So unfortunately... There's going to be more accidents. There's probably going to be more Mm -hmm. fires. I mean, that's just the nature of running nonstop, as it sounds like everyone is or trying to do, if they have the help to do it. So, I mean, it's a good reminder, I think, for everyone to kind of take a second look at their safety protocols and their policies and their storage and all that stuff. And, you know, are your policies designed around a shop that runs one shift and maybe now it's running two, like take a look at that, right? So mm-hmm. um because obviously it this happens in Thailand, it happens here, it mm-hmm. happens on the ocean. It's happening everywhere.
0: Yeah. When well, it happens in Thailand when they're making products that we're gonna buy here. So I think mm-hmm. the other thing is that on a personal level, you gotta make those you got to make some of those choices as a consumer also. I mean, Jeff, I don't know if this happens to you, but when you're at the barbecue and you go to grab the plate and it's the foam plate, and you're like, ah, damn, I still really want a hot dog. <laughs> and it's just like there's yeah. that inherent guilt, but like.
2: You have the bun. I, you yeah. can hold it with the bun. Where do but, you put your baked beans and in coleslaw in? Chips. No, I only put have your baked hands. beans in your hand, Jeff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what if they're hot, Anna?
0: What if they're hot beans? <laughs> hot beans aside, there has to be. A great.
2: Eat them off the hood of your car, Jeff.
0: <laughs> uh, Gross. Is there any guilt? Do you experience any guilt when, like, uh, you wind up using uh, products like this that you maybe wouldn't normally purchase? Guilt? I'm being
1: honest. No, not guilt. Yeah. But I think when, yeah, when you do look back at, it, you're like, no, if it was like my event or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, you want to try to avoid that. But if you're at somebody else's house and that's what they have, yeah, I don't. I'm not going to say I feel guilty about it. It's not my preferred route to go, yeah, but I think even as consumers, yes, individual consumers, we look at that, but also if you're i don't know in this case, maybe you're a food service company, mm-hmm. do you look at more closely at your supply chain mm-hmm. to yeah. make sure that <clears throat> there aren't potentially individuals that you're sourcing from that are contributing to these types of safety issues, you know these types of situations that arise because safety is not at a premium, yeah. Um, and that's hard to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, as but- a depending on where you are within the supply chain, you would hope that goes further up, you know, to whoever is directly buying from this type of facility is looking more closely at that. Mm-hmm. But again, to Anna's point, with all of this demand, I think people are sort of just not looking at that, not scrutinizing that in the same way they would have before. Yeah. If it's available and I can get it here on time, I'm going for it. And I agree with her. I think that does is what is
0: leading to more of these types of situations. Well, it's we're in a global race to economic recovery, right? Mm-hmm. And it's—I uh, mean—that might have a huge impact on consumer packaged goods.
2: Yeah, everybody wants a piece, and yeah. they're working as fast as they can to get it. And...
0: Man, just less foam plates, and I think we're fine. I don't think so. Oh, okay, okay. Well, that's the first step. The
2: first step. <laughs> yeah. Is...
0: No, uh, when I talked about the styrene monomer. When it burns, it actually emits styrene gas, a neurotoxin, which immobilizes people within minutes of inhalation and can be fatal at high concentrations. So it's actually, you know, a number of people were injured during this. Many of them were the uh, first responders. Uh, But really, it's lucky that there weren't more fatalities uh, given the PPE. It was just, it was the one firefighter. The one, Mm -hmm. yeah, like volunteer firefighter, yeah. Um, And I mean, there's, no number that is acceptable, but it could have been way worse. Yeah. All right, the second most popular story this week. Pentagon cancels disputed cloud contract. Last week, the Pentagon canceled its $10 billion cloud computing contract with Microsoft. Now the DoD will work out a deal with both Microsoft and Amazon. When Microsoft revealed, or first received the initial reward, Amazon fought back with legal challenges, saying the award was tainted by politics. So the joint enterprise- Defense Infrastructure, or JEDI, contract is now dead, and the Joint Warfighter Cloud Capability, or JWCC, which is way less cool, is the New Deal with both Amazon and Microsoft, quote, likely being awarded parts of the business, but Google, IBM, and Oracle might qualify too. The Pentagon's Chief Information Officer, John Sherman, told reporters last Tuesday that during the lengthy legal fight with Amazon, quote, The landscape has evolved with new possibilities for large-scale cloud computing services. And Anna, this was a fun article to kind of read between the lines of just like, they're going to be a tremendous pain, and so we're going to get rid of all this to make it nice.
2: The reasoning of the landscape has evolved was my favorite vague language of, of the day, but... I don't know. I can see wanting to diversify from a vendor standpoint or from a technology standpoint. I mean, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But it does kind of the way they like the the landscape has evolved. It It kind of did leave you wondering if like Amazon's assertion that they didn't get the contract originally because Donald Trump hated Jeff Bezos. If mm-hmm. that might actually hold some water here. I don't know. We have no way of knowing. But we do know that politicians play favorites um not just Trump all of them do uh and i just thought it was um interesting timing too that like we're talking about turning up the heat on taxation on some of these big companies and then suddenly the government is in a position to pay like um many billions yeah like a handful of these big companies back with like a big contract that may sort of make that a a, a less uh I don't know. I don't know. It cause uh, fewer fewer problems, maybe less pushback if mm-hmm. um you know Google, IBM, Microsoft, Amazon all get a piece of this deal and it's multi-billion dollars for each, cool. I guess um, <laughs> it's not that any of them don't deserve it. They're all quite capable companies, um but that's it's pretty easily defended that choice, so. Yeah. You
0: know. The grim outlook on many things last week. It's uh Jeff, is this just you know, uh, you know, a little bit of payback for some of the big players that might get a little bit more? Uh... Uh, I'll double down on what Anna said. There is no doubt in my mind, Jeff, <laughs> <laughs> that,
1: that this was that the, the Trump administration's decision was a, just a direct slap at Jeff Bezos. Yeah, and I, don't I think was trying to be diplomatic. I'll yeah, <laughs> let you say it. That's no funny. way, and I'll say that as a card-carrying you know Republican conservative. I mean, there's just no way mm-hmm. <laughs> that that was not what was done here. In my opinion, when you're looking at cloud computing and especially security for Department of Defense data, the more smart people you can put in that room, sure. the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think this is a good move. I got nothing against Microsoft. I think just getting more people involved is better. Mm-hmm. We do that with everything else in the Department of Defense. How many defense contractors are there? Okay, mm-hmm. And yeah. that's because everybody does something a little better. Mm-hmm. Okay, It's what they do. It's their core competency make full use of all of that to do this right and spread it out a little bit. I have no problem with that at all. And potentially what this could lead to then is when companies of this size get these types of contracts, or at least it does when you're looking at hardware, it also trickles down and creates new opportunities for some smaller vendors. Now, I know this is more cloud computing and storage and security. We're not looking at physical products, Mm -hmm. but you think it could potentially also stimulate some opportunities that way for some smaller businesses, and a lot of things with these government contracts also try to bring in, bring in minority-owned businesses and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So I think, again, spreading it out just makes a ton of sense and does
0: sort of right a administrative wrong that yeah. was
1: done. I don't think there's
0: any way around that. I agree with all these points, but can you think of another example where complaining in being litigious has been so profitable.
2: It I did not expect this to turn over. Though. No,
0: it was just I mean I, ex- I expected it to be a legacy, you know well, you know they got the we got the Pentagon contract but whatever. But instead, they threatened litigation, spent millions of dollars mm-hmm. being a fly in the ointment, but and I mean it paid off. You know, now yeah. they're they got a piece of that 10 billion dollar pie opening up. And it was just that I found like so many times you see those lawsuits and you think they're frivolous. Mm-hmm. And uh hey, this is proof that I've kind of paid off. Well, let's also not be naive. <laughs> these are yeah. some
1: these are some big companies with some deep pockets who have lobbyists and influences influence and in everything else. So I'm sure there is some other stories surrounding this. It wasn't just the Biden administration saying, you know what, this wasn't done right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need we need to be more altruistic and just do the right thing do to the, the American right people. Yeah. I
0: don't think that was the sole driver here. Either. Oh Back on the language surrounding this that was absolutely hilarious, Microsoft's statement, in the most passive-aggressive manner, in my tone that I understood it, said, we understand the DoD's rationale and we support them and every military member who needs the mission-critical 21st century technology Jedi would have provided. The DoD faced a difficult choice, continue with what could be a years-long litigation battle or find another path forward. Man, that's just him being like, I'm so pissed, but I still need a piece of that. And it's also them saying, we're going to play nice because we want some of these monopoly conversations to just go away.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and then Amazon responded by saying, it understands and agrees with the Pentagon's decision. That's so strange that they would agree. That's crazy. Yeah. This big pile of money just opened up again and they're like, oh, it makes sense. It makes sense. All right. Our most popular story this week. Lawsuit accuses Amazon of price gouging through the pandemic. A new class-action lawsuit accuses Amazon of price gouging during COVID-19. The lawsuit was recently expanded to include a proposed class of all Amazon shoppers nationwide. According to Hoggins Berman, the law firm behind the suit, some of the gouging included face masks, which were up 1,800% from $4.21 to about $80, toilet paper, which was up more than 1,000% from $17.50 to $200, in black beans, up five hundred and twenty-one percent from three dollars and fifty-four cents to twenty-one ninety-nine. Other emergency and medical supplies, as well as cleaning and personal hygiene products. In Hopkins Berman,
2: <laughs> twenty-one. I know exactly def- what she's thinking. Twenty-one dollar black beans. That's what I'm thinking.
1: <laughs> well, because I caught that too. I remember, I remember this. Yeah, I could, find,
0: I could not find black beans at the grocery store. What was up with black beans?
2: I don't know. I always had
0: an ample supply of black beans. I don't know. You know, no, they were. It was. Like the, that part of
1: the uh, shelving at the grocery store was bare. So was the so supply
0: weird. chain was off. I don't know. Yeah. I guess I had like bags of the dehydrated stuff. Well, Hagen's Berman says that it is one of the most successful consumer litigation firms in the U.S. and has achieved more than $260 billion in settlements for consumers in lawsuits against food corporations, automakers, big banks, and others. Anna, yeah. uh, did you fall victim to such gouging?
2: Uh, no, because I watch Amazon's pricing like a hawk and I get so mad when they try to overcharge me on baby wipes and the like. (laughs) Um, and then I just go to Target with Mm my pocketbook. Um, no, I just, this is interesting because there's a paper trail. Um, you know, Amazon was accused of price gouging, like before the pandemic shutdowns even started, like when people were starting to get nervous about the virus and buying extra hand sanitizer and gloves and masks. Um, the prices on their marketplace started to go crazy and people were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then Amazon went in and cleared out a bunch of those listings, but you, <laughs> they, they would just pop right back up, you know? Mm-hmm. And so like that, it's just such a, a, it really illustrates the challenges that Amazon has policing their marketplace because, um, you know, the language in this article, it, it, they're accusing Amazon of this, Amazon of that. Amazon did this knowingly, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of these products, I'm assuming, were marketplace yeah, products. Party. Yeah. So, but, um, you know, the way Amazon sets up their site is they let their third party um, sellers uh, sell via Prime and fulfilled by Amazon. Mm-hmm. So they align their brand with these sellers. And this I think is a situation where that does not work out well for Amazon because now it appears that Amazon's like kind of putting their their heft behind these sellers, when in fact it was these sellers probably who were the ones that were trying to take advantage of of the the consumers. So I don't know what happens here exactly. I mean it's an interesting case because if Amazon's not the one who's selling um the products, if they're just the marketplace, the platform is Amazon to be held liable for the pricing I don't know mm-hmm. um I mean they've certainly uh been held liable in the past for quality issues and there were some counterfeit products that in sort of a landmark suit I think it was last year or the year before Amazon was held responsible for I think vitamins or something that were being sold on their site that they did not that, that were not legit mm-hmm. right so I don't know I don't know how, where this goes I don't know how it how it lands for Amazon
0: Jeff, you really struggled with black beans that mightily, huh? It
1: was weird. Yeah, yeah. like every like every other trip to the grocery store. Yeah, yeah but
0: when you see pricing like this on the platform, doesn't it raise red flags to you? And I don't know. There's a part of me that just says if you're gonna pay two hundred dollars for toilet paper, that's on you.
1: I agree, a hundred percent. What's with I couldn't find? I read this a couple times. I couldn't determine who they're suing exactly Exactly. to to Mm -hmm. Anna's point because if you're just going over after Amazon as a whole, you know, we've talked about this in other circumstances. There's no law against being a dick, Mm -hmm. okay? If you want to be a jerk about stuff, you can, Mm -hmm. okay? And if Amazon wants to jack up the prices on TP and hand wipes, I mean, that is something they're allowed to do. Yeah. I don't advocate for it. I don't think it's a best practice. I don't think anybody would. But saying that they were breaking the law by doing so seems like an awful big swing. Yeah. Okay. Now, to Anna's point, if they're going after either the sellers, that's not Amazon. Then you have to go after some of these individual sellers or if they're going after the vendors, in other words, were some of those providers of those products, Gouging Amazon, so then Amazon in turn had to raise the prices on consumers i don't that's what would need to be clarified for me, yeah, to really understand what they think they're going to accomplish to me, this seems like more of a group of people getting really pissed off. Mm-hmm. Um, a law firm seeing something where they could make a lot of headlines and get a lot of notoriety after going to by going after a big company well the biggest company yeah um to, to do that, and if nothing else, hopefully it just it does get Amazon to scrutinize and police. Their suppliers a little, bit and their resellers more carefully. Yeah, um, that would be the best outcome because I, it's hard to imagine anything really happening here. If even if Amazon would settle, that sets a horrible precedent for them. I mean, they're then but they're going to be open to lawsuits forever about this. But and
0: what what? How do you define price gouging? I think it's is it specifically price gouging because it happened during the pandemic, because it was during a global crisis.
2: Well, yeah, I think so. So like um, I just because you were talking about price gouging and I didn't know if it was actually illegal or not, I just looked it up. Um, Mm -hmm. And it is or in most states it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most states have laws against um, against like increasing prices on something when the demand ticks up to a certain degree and it's like a violation of unfair or deceptive trade practices law. So there are most states that says that they can enforce criminal penalties for price gouging violations. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Amazon may be
0: really on the hook for struggling
2: (laughs) to. But again, like who who is the one that should be prosecuted here? Is it the marketplace or is it the individual seller?
0: Well, I think just thinking about it, I mean, if the marketplace, if Amazon is the one enabling that sale. Mm-hmm. You know, that product doesn't get sold for $200 unless it's on Amazon. It's not like the guy can move them out of the back of his truck for 200 bucks or maybe he can, I don't know.
2: Right, no, it's very slippery. I know. And and you know, Amazon like because of the, all the problems they've had with counterfeits, they have increased some of their checks and balances internally to try to prevent problems with sellers just kind of being doing whatever they want, you know? Mm. But I still don't think they have enough of a handle on what's being just put up there. They can't get to it in time. Stuff is getting put up there that they, they aren't managing preemptively, and that's the problem.
0: Um, Jeff, do you get any red flags based on the law firm that was uh, behind this lawsuit? No, I think there's a, a fair number of these
1: types of law firms. And I think at its core, there is a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. Okay, even if it is just raising awareness for Amazon internally to police this better, yeah, I just struggle when we we tout our capitalist economy and how it is it's it's what you earn it's what you put in for mm-hmm. it it's reinforcing value and all that type of thing, and then we start going after people when they start charging too much mm-hmm. now again, I think it's a jerk move to raise the price on those things, but to police that to an extent where they can be liable i don't know i that bothers me when it's not a I don't know. Is toilet paper a medical supply? You know. Yeah. It, are, are black? Did my were my tacos at home that much worse because I couldn't get black beans or I didn't want to mm-hmm. pay for them? They I mean, were. apparently so. Yeah,
2: they were.
1: Yeah. It depends. I didn't feel. could you score any lives? <laughs> where did the flavor so I, come from? I think a lot of that price gouging. Definitely, when you look at the medical stuff, like we see that the, the epi EpiPens just shot up a mm-hmm. couple oh, yeah. years ago. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's yeah. where you want this type of of regulation to come into play. I don't know this this seems like a big swing.
0: yeah, it is harder to, when it's toilet paper and face masks and other cleaning supplies, but when the pandemic started and I needed inhalers for my kid and those were out because everybody was uh, trying to get their hands on as many as possible, then there was real anger and consequences.
1: Well, the other thing too is and I know we've gotten Amazon has sort of become just a part of our lives and that's where we go to and that's how we fulfill mm-hmm. things. I mean, it's basically you know I know people who Toilet paper, paper toweling—they just have a regular order. It's coming in on a regular basis, and that works for them. That's great. The other thing is that we noticed during you know a year ago or whatever, if we went out of town a little bit, mm-hmm. you could find stuff. I mean, it's not oh, convenient, yeah. it's not easy, it's not something everybody's capable of doing. But there were other options. I don't think Amazon is in a you know such a controlling state that there were no other options or other places to go either for these things that people needed.
0: There well, were other options, and in general, Amazon seems to was. At first, Amazon was really undercutting on price to sort of uh, be under larger local competitors, box stores like that. And a couple of years ago, I realized that they were actually creeping up to be more and more expensive than some of those other traditional stores that uh, I would otherwise go to, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's, I mean, sometimes it's, you just got to shop around a little bit. I don't know. I found that with books. yeah. Like Barnes and Noble, a lot of times they're better than Amazon. Yeah. You don't get it. You can't order it drunk. True. If, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you could. Yeah. Oh, I
1: guess. I guess. Yeah. They just don't have all those things. If you like this, maybe you like these 500 bags of candy. Yeah. Oh, if you yeah. like black that beans,
2: likes. maybe you like baked beans. In your hands. Because <laughs>
0: somebody won't put out a thermos bowl. Eating, eating them on the hot hood of a car. Uh, Man. Can, all right. Well, we let's move on to, much. in case you missed it, the stories this week that uh, weren't as popular but still could make a big impact on the industry going forward. I'll start because I don't know if it'll have a big impact on the industry going forward, but it was hilarious. Uh, a desktop water jet was used to cut out cow-shaped beef. <laughs> Before the 4th of July, engineers at Wazer made some tweaks to the company's desktop water jet. While the machine is typically used to cut metal and glass, Wazer used it to cut meat. They cut cow-shaped steaks and slabs with the company's logo, but they had to change the traditional cutting media in the machine. The desktop water jet typically uses abrasive mineral particles to cut materials. But, you know, since they were planning to eat it, they (laughs) changed the media and filled the hopper with uh, popcorn salt. The employees then built a grill out of spare parts to have a barbecue. And I just think that's awesome. <laughs> the project wasn't without its challenges. Some shapes, including the CEOs, didn't make the cut. Ooh, steak CEO. Yeah, uh, Wazer CEO Nissan Laria said, "Quote: Waterjet meat cutting is harder than it looks. <laughs> really, it looks hard. Yeah. already. <laughs> you have to put. You have to cut the meat while it's still frozen to retain yeah. the shape. The designs need to be very simple. And his butterfly-shaped chicken nuggets didn't make it. <laughs> and." As we were preparing for the holiday, I just saw the story and it brought me joy. If nothing else, I mean, we see so many things about we talk about custom uh, custom food products, particularly with three D printing. I know there were three D printing pizzas at one time and other products. And this was just an interesting, uh, you know, an interesting story of seemingly some engineers at a water jet manufacturer having a little bit of fun. And mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty cool.
2: Yeah, it definitely brings some. Uh- some like media to to 3D printing, which I feel like it was sort of like a big thing for a while. And then now no no one talks about it anymore.
0: No. Yeah. It's it's additive manufacturing and it's serious. You can't it's, make trinkets anymore. Right. It's going to revolutionize the business. Yeah. No, but it, I mean, it's a small, you know, a CNC machine or, or not a CNC machine, uh, a water jet. You typically think massive machine that's out on the floor, taking up a lot of space. And this company specializes in making a desktop version that's much more accessible. Uh, but Jeff, did you see the cow shaped steak? It's fantastic. And the grill, grill marks were perfect. I thought it was a cool
1: application. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't want to put these out on the, out on the grill?
0: Yeah. yeah. I thought it was very cool. And just the, I just picture the engineers being like, well, we cut the meat. Where do we cook it now? And they realize they don't have a Weber in the office like we do. And so, of course, engineers being engineers, they're like, I mean, we're in a shop. We'll make one.
2: Yeah. Let's just make a grill quick and we'll be fine. Yeah, said a bunch of engineers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> where,
1: where did the idea come from? Let's make a cow-shaped steak. Like, was that something kicking around for a while? Oh, and they just like
0: that's. It. I mean, it's time. Like accidental pun, but I mean, that's a deep cut. Like, uh, no, we're gonna <laughs> oh, make that. You have been thinking about that I, since you put this story up. Since right now, no, it's. Uh, I was just like, oh man, they did it. They made a. Steak shaped like a cow, and I love them for it. Also, when you're submitting designs for food to be cut out of this machine, how do you go with butterfly-shaped chicken nuggets? Yeah, that's a little weird stretch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just try to make a firework out of chicken. I don't know. Uh, Jeff, Yeah, what was was your in case you missed it this week? So I think this one ran
1: right before the weekend of the 4th. And mine was... Panasonic unloading their stake in Tesla. So basically Panasonic has been the the battery supplier for Tesla since they've been getting going. Um, They will continue to be, even though Tesla is working on developing their own battery. So right now the companies, they're still working together. But way back in the day in 2010, Panasonic purchased 1.4 million shares in Tesla for $30 million. So Mm. there's a good infusion of capital there for Tesla. But what was most impressive here, is when Panasonic sold this, they netted around $3.6 billion. Um, I'm not real good at math, so maybe somebody wants to check this, but I believe that's a 12,000% return on their investment. Yeah, Um, That's impressive. Mm. And if, indeed, they are going to use these funds for research and development into electronic batteries, that's something that could benefit all of us. Mm -hmm. So... um, kudos to
0: Panasonic for a pretty smart investment that's there. bananas yeah a smart investment though when everyone was selling you know just didn't want any part of that Tesla game and mm-hmm. the people that yeah. got into it you know they've been rewarded for it uh Anna what did you think of that story
2: uh I had no idea that they made that much money that's insane mm-hmm.
1: well and even a year ago in March of last year those shares were worth 730 million so even that from 730 to 3.6 billion billion mm-hmm. yeah
0: i believe the term is That's embarrassment incredible. of riches incredible <laughs> <Wow. laughs> at least it's not one dude it's a company
2: <laughs> true yeah
0: uh Anna, what was your in case you missed it this week
2: um mine was uh, a store we ran last week week before um about a paper supplier that was is being sued by the department of labor for firing an alleged uh, whistleblower and this was an interesting story and i'll Try to continue to say alleged when appropriate, <laughs> but if I miss one, this is all alleged. So don't send me a letter, lawyer. <laughs> uh, the company is called Midvale Paper Box, and it's being sued by the U.S. Department of Labor after the company alleged, allegedly fired a worker they believed was a whistleblower behind revelations that their safety practices were not up to par. These allegations included things like not following lockout tagout procedures when employees were unjamming machines, which makes me want to throw up. Mm -hmm. It also included a report that a worker asked for safety gloves to operate a shredding machine and was denied multiple times Mm -hmm. for safety gloves. Mm -hmm. So this lawsuit comes after a 2017 investigation by OSHA that resulted in the agency promising or proposing $200,000 in fines, I believe, um, Why is it worth it to skimp it on the safety gloves, Midvale Paper? I mean, like, what are these operations thinking that this
1: this this has to be one guy, right, who's on a power trip? I you hope so. His one responsibility is you're in charge of the gloves, (laughs) the glove guy. You you that is what your thing is. So he's like being selective or sort of like lording power over gloves i don't know or you
2: know i mean we deal with you know we see these companies all the time that are just like so short staffed that that people are wearing like 10 hats and so the person who's like the supply chain manager is also the vp of marketing and it's like how do you do both of those things at once um i mean maybe it was that type of a scenario it's really really hard to understand though and um it's just beyond me the the level of negligence there and you think like getting a warning in in 2017 basically with this osha thing mm-hmm. and then to continue to operate that way is just well, especially
1: osha you know we we read about earlier in the pandemic they they didn't have enough people to get out and inspect all these facilities yeah. and and do all of this but once they get on a trail of somebody mm-hmm. they're not letting go right mm-hmm. so once osha's got a foot in the door wouldn't you just be like throwing safety equipment Mm -hmm. at people and just get them out of there Mm -hmm. because they were just had a warning here as opposed to actually OSHA dropping the hammer. Mm -hmm. And now it's going to be that much worse. I mean, they're going to have who knows how many lawsuits that are going to come out of this. And if it's just this one person right now, it's got to be more than just that one person that saw a lot of this going on or was mistreated or, or whatever you want to say. Yeah, this is, maybe you're right. I mean, it's just mismanagement based on the fact that people are wearing too many hats and not paying attention.
2: I don't know, but but thank goodness for this whistleblower, because like, you know, unjamming machines that are not like properly using lockout tagout, that's how people lose their hands and arms. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's awful.
0: Well, what was crazy about this story was they fired the worker and say, thinking that the worker was the one that filed the complaint Mm -hmm. or initiated the investigation, but didn't they were completely wrong yeah it wasn't that person Mm -hmm. it was uh so even worse it was just like i mean first you go for gloves and they say no and you're like all right and then they fire you and you're like well what's happening
2: yeah basically this person got fired for asking for gloves yeah that is outrageous
1: and then probably saying something like you know somebody should know that you guys aren't giving people gloves Mm
2: -hmm. now we know who did it
0: yeah it's uh i don't know it it reminds me of something like a company that hires you and issues you one set of ear uh, like earplugs and that's like, it. the rest are on you.
2: Yeah. If you lose them, then sorry.
0: Yeah. You got got to replace them yourself. I don't know this. uh, I found this to be particularly egregious because it did come down to something as simple as gloves.
2: I know it was awful. But the one uh, fun fact to this otherwise very dismal report is that Midvale is located in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And um, that's just down the road from the fictitious, Dunder Mifflin Paper Company of Scranton, PA. So, yeah. well, I mean, we know they had some safety violations, right?
0: Oh, yeah. No, it's, uh, I mean, based on my knowledge of the dock there, they definitely didn't have it's safety. Because Michael cups. wanted mm-hmm. to operate the bailer. That exactly. was the whole problem. <laughs> oh, my God. Just give people the appropriate safety gear, period. Right? Doesn't seem hard, David. No, it doesn't seem hard. Also, the office is legendary. Also, oh, right.
1: way to get way to use the word egregious without—I mean—you just smooth.
0: I thought oh. for sure that was going to be a, a yeah. stumble. Right, there. I've fumbled on enough words for today. Okay, all right. Good so work. let's let's pepper a few more in for final thoughts. Uh, Jeff, any final thoughts this week? So I was doing a lot of driving to and oh. from where uh,
1: where we vacationed, and then I had to do some more driving yesterday with running around with my mom and stuff. I bet you I saw some. I don't know, probably 8 or 10 billboards for manufacturing facilities looking for workers. Oh, yeah. Touting starting wages of upwards of like 25 bucks an hour. I mean, that's pretty good starting wage, especially yeah, in some of these small mm-hmm. towns um, mm-hmm. that we were going through. So it, I think we're entering a very interesting sort of economic time here. Uh, we know about the restaurants and a lot of the service industries, how much they're looking for skilled workers or just workers, period. And now, um, you know, manufacturing looks like they are starting to step up in terms of pay. And also promotion, because a lot of those places would not be going sort of a non-traditional route mm-hmm. in terms of looking for workers like that. So hopefully they can find them and, mm-hmm. um, and use it
0: going forward. But it was interesting to see that many of them mm-hmm. um, and to see them promoting those starting wages. Well, and I think, you know, it's, there's still that stigma to some people, but a career in manufacturing, as we've seen with many of the people in our families, can be a very good and beneficial career. Well, now it's just starting. Yeah.
1: I mean, get into a management position and and going from there. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of opportunity if that's where you're starting at.
0: Yeah. Uh, Anna, your final thought this week.
2: Uh, So this week, our um, office renovation is complete, as you guys have seen the new holodeck Mm -hmm. um, behind us. But uh, everyone moved back into the office after um, how long has it been? 16, 17 months?
0: Yeah. March 13th, 2020
2: uh and it feels really good to be back It it is so quiet in here compared to my house <laughs> where my children live yeah <laughs> that um it's kind of nice i miss them but sorry guys i miss you guys but you know you're loud <laughs> super <laughs> well, loud
0: <laughs> we were loud for like the first hour yeah and it was just like it is nice to talk to people again and then there was the realization of like we actually have a lot to do today. Right, so we do. <laughs> we'll catch up later. Yeah. Oh, bagels in the office too for the first time. It was like, oh man. Interesting. Um, my final thought this week was the same thing as Anna's. Really excited to just be back in the office. And uh, normally it's, you know, uh, two or three of us in this office. And it was just really weird to, be, to have it loud and not be us. And that was an, it was enjoyable. <laughs> it was enjoyable. Final thoughts. That was all of them. <laughs> All right, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast and email the podcast. You can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email, the podcast, in the subject line. You can also get this first if you make sure to subscribe to our many daily or weekly newsletters. We'll make sure you get it in your inbox first. All right, for Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manty. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast, and uh, we'll try to shake out the cobwebs for next week. We're going to do better, guys.
1: (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.